If you're looking for inspiration and challenge in the world of early years and Key Stage 1 education, then you've just found it. Welcome to the Early Excellence Podcast. Hello everybody, Andy Burt here. Welcome along to episode 64 of the Early Excellence Podcast. This week we talked to Catherine Lang, who is a lecturer in developmental linguistics at York University. As part of the discussion, we explore early speech and language development and also consider the impact of the COVID-19 lockdowns on children's speaking skills. So here you go. Here's my Early Excellence podcast chat with Catherine Lang. Okay, so um, I'm joined by Catherine Lang, who is a lecturer in developmental linguistics at York University. Catherine, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's it's nice to be here. (laughs) Oh, very good. Well, thank you ever so much. We're really grateful. So um, you're obviously very interested in linguistics, in early child development around speech and language. Um, When did your interest in linguistics start you know when did you become interested in child development around speech uh, well it was at university uh, I studied actually French and German at university and then in my final year I took a module um, with Professor Marilyn Veeman who's an expert in early infant vocal production so she taught her research looks at how babies learn to start producing words basically and um, I took her module and I was just absolutely fascinated by the complexity and how it's not just about language, but also about cognition, about memory, um, the early infant's experiences. It was like a light bulb went on my on in my head. So I stayed and did a master's with her, and then I ended up doing a PhD with Marilyn as well. Fantastic. Sounds it does sound fascinating. It does sound really interesting. And then as part of your your current role, you're a lecturer, aren't you, at, at your university? Yes. And I then, uh, so and as part of that role, you do a lot of research as well. So there's a balance yes. there. Yes. So yes, how does that yes. how does that work out? You know, in terms of sort of time. Um, well, I don't do as much research as I would like, but we tend to have a few studies running at any given time. So we have a, a baby lab in in the department, and we have a great um, set of researchers. Um, so some PhD students and postdocs, as well as lecturers, who run studies in the lab. So generally, we have research assistants who run the studies while we're teaching. Um, and then in the summer and in the holidays, we get a bit more time to do um, kind of more focused research. Yes. Yeah. It sounds fascinating. And and can you tell us kind of what specifically you focus on in terms of the research that you do and the research that you're part of? Uh, well, at the moment, because of COVID, COVID's actually been really interesting um, for um, how we do research, because we had to find ways to do research remotely. So at the moment, we've actually got some remote studies that are taking place over Zoom. Um, so we're recording um, parents interacting with their babies in different kinds of contexts, depending on the study. And then we're using that to um, that to, to understand more about how parents speak to their to, to their babies. Um, and we're hoping to get set up again soon. With we have an eye tracker in the baby lab. So um, you can do some really exciting studies, um, understanding how how babies respond to different language, what they know. Um, So we're hoping to get that back up and running um, in the near future to do more work in in the lab as opposed to remotely. Yes, it sounds fascinating. And so do you then focus in on 
children within a particular window of in terms of age you know so maybe birth to two perhaps or birth to three is there a particular window or do you go beyond that um, I think at the moment the oldest um, children we have in our lab are age two um, that's just because of what I'm personally interested in but I mean acquisition learning language continues for, for a few years after then I mean even in primary school, children are still learning um, aspects of, of how to talk. So it's not that the interest or the study cuts off at any given point. Um, but my, my, my research is focused on very early language learning. But of course, learning happens in, in a lot of different ways later on as well. Yes. Yeah. It is really interesting. Really interesting. Of course, and, and language development particularly is something that I think has become certainly since the COVID pandemic, a real headline grabber. grabber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that kind of we, I'm sure as, as, as our listeners will will be very aware of, you know, that, that particularly on entry to school or on entry to, to nursery schools, um, certainly er, the early research seems to be pointing to the fact that, that children are not where they were pre-pandemic in terms of speech and language. Which is quite interesting, I think. You know, and and I'm certainly the people that I talk to, as you know, as I'm out, out and about and I meet right, yeah. teachers and practitioners. You know, lots of people, lots of reception teachers, particularly, will have said to me, you know, that we're seeing a real difference this year. We have seen a real difference in terms of sometimes in terms of behaviour, sometimes in terms of speech and language skills as well. And yeah. that that many are finding that they're having to start at a different point to where they've needed to perhaps start previously. Right. That's why I think it's quite interesting to talk to you as, as somebody who actually does really focus on those kind of those those very much those formative years, those kind of birth to two or birth to three years. Because yeah. I mean, I think so. I've actually been involved in a study recently that was led by researchers at the University of Oslo. So this is a, um, a really big study that's taken, um, I think it, it's over about 10 different countries and um, thousands of different um researchers sorry thousands of different participants have been involved um and so we collected questionnaires from families looking at um the kinds of activities they got involved with during lockdown looking at um their children's vocabulary so the the researchers who led the study had a great idea lockdown was um, announced across europe um and they said okay let's find out now what children's language is like and then when lockdown is um is is released when we're allowed out into the world again let's look at, let's test the children's language again and then compare that data to data we, we've already got from previous children who didn't go through lockdown so if you imagine a three-year-old who has never had a lockdown before compare their data with a three-year-old who's had a year of being in lockdown um and um so a really um, fascinating idea for a study. So I was involved with this research and we found out that basically children who, um, it, it completely, the speech and language at the end of lockdown depended on the activities that parents got involved with during lockdown. So um, children who ha- had lots of opportunity to read lots with their parents, to engage more with their parents, which some, of course, some families did because some parents were on furlough or had more time to spend with their children than they normally would. They actually had better language skills than we would have expected. Whereas children who um, who played more computer games and engaged more in sort of more loan activities, 
had worse language skills than we would expect compared to the average. Now, that's a question not of, okay, there's, we know that some things are good for children, uh, children's language and other things are less good for children's language. But of course, also some parents just didn't have the capacity to be spending the day with their children because they were in hospitals or they were busy caring for other people. Or, so um, I think basically what the study was telling us was that families who were already sort of stressed, who already kind of didn't have the kind of privileges that of lots of time with their children and book reading, they that their kind of issues became bigger during lockdown, whereas families who maybe were more comfortable, had lots more time with their children, they, they became more able to care for the children during lockdown. So the gap we'd normally see widened between privileged and less privileged children. That's how I understand that um, that that current kind of problem with speech and language in in early years. Yeah. And and presumably teachers and practitioners will see that 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 kind of distance, that big gap appearing between those who actually have or had that time with parents and those who clearly didn't have that. Um, yeah, it's it's certainly quite an interesting time at the minute, I would imagine, as a researcher, you know, to, to be really working because this is sort of has been such an unprecedented time, you know, over the last few years that actually, you know, it's a time that you can really delve into, isn't it? And, and, and now as the children are still at that early stage, you can see the impact of that time when they didn't have quite the same number of experiences, perhaps. Yeah, as, as yeah. Previous years. Yeah, yeah. and this just social experience has just been for the first time ever completely like taken away from so many people. And yes. yeah, it is yeah. interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, fascinating stuff. So I, I was going to ask you about three key things. So I was okay. looking at your website and um, <laughs> so on your website, uh, the, the York University website, you've then got your own page. And so I had a, had a look through and I was looking at what it is that you're specifically interested in. And it's there were three things that jumped out at me. OK, right. So iconicity. OK, that's the first thing. Iconicity. What 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 is iconicity? So iconicity is. Um, and it doesn't have to be specific to language, but I'll, I'll stick to language for now. Um, iconicity is when a form and a meaning are connected in some way. So, for example, if you take the word dog and the meaning dog, right, the two things are not, they're connected in that we know that the word dog relates to the animal dog, but we could call a dog something else. The word itself, dog, isn't dog-like in any way, right? It doesn't have any kind of dog properties. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I see, yeah. And then that, of, sorry, go on. Sorry, I, I was just going to say, and then that then links to what else you're interested in, which is onomatopoeia. So the two things are linked then. Now I hadn't I hadn't realized that when I when I read it. Okay. So so you on the on the website you've got iconicity and then you've got onomatopoeia. Okay, and of course, onomatopoeia is is that the, a word that sounds like what it is that we are expressing. Yeah. Okay. So there is a link then between the thing and the word through the sound. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the idea is that the word dog is not very dog-like, but the word woof woof is barking-like. It's woof-like. Um, so um, and there's a big theory that proposes that children produce these words a lot because they're easier for children to kind of conceptualize 
So iconic or on iconic forms in general. So um, onomatopoeia reflects sounds. So woof, woof, choo, choo, they all represent sounds. So they're a word that represents a sound. An iconic word might represent things like proper properties, physical properties. So something like teeny or tiny, they're kind of small sounds. Um, whereas humongous is like a big sound, but it, it or a big word, but it doesn't represent a sound. But across the board, children are thought to use these words because they they're easier for children to understand and conceptualize, and children can be more expressive with the way they speak by using iconic mm. or onomatopoeic words. It is really interesting stuff. Really interesting. And and then presumably then in in your research, do you then focus in on that idea of why children might go for certain might learn certain words ahead of others is that right I mean I don't want to second guess your research but I, I guess that that's so you kind of so there are words like like you say woof or um you know other other sort of onom onomatopoeic words that that where you kind of see I'm now struggling to think of any <laughs> woof is definitely yeah. one yeah yeah of course yes yeah. so, you know those sorts of words um that that have a that, that I suppose draw children towards them in a way that other children, other words don't. Does that yeah. make sense? And it's hard to explain, isn't it? Which is why yeah. the research is interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, actually, I think you've you've captured it perfectly there. So that's what you've just said is basically <laughs> the conclusion of my PhD thesis. So you you could have, I mean, you, you could have saved me a few years. Um, but <laughs> but basically, they're fun. Like they're. I mean, I, I'm not necessarily sold by the idea that the form and meaning connectedness makes them easy. I think actually they're fun words and children like things that are kind of novel and exciting and they can participate in a, a conversation. They can make things up. They can use their imagination. They can, they're playful. And of course, children, that's, that's, they're very childlike in their, in their, their way of being used. And I think that's why, um, that's why children produce them. And also, so we have our adult kind of forms like meow, woof, moo, but children add sound effects, or adults do sometimes, add sound effects and make them really expressive. Um, and I think that's just appealing to, to yes. everybody, but to young people in particular. Yeah, I, I would think as well, they are words that are linked to actions quite often, aren't they? Not always, but they're, they're not really words that you would use and you would sit still without a smile on your face and use, you know, yes, literally yeah. just, just completely deadpan. They are words that you would use whilst pretending to be a cat or pretending to be a dog or pretending to be a cow and do it, you know, all of the, or, you know, or moving or, you know, it's about actions, isn't it? And I guess the, the link between the physical and, and then also the, the speech and language patterns, I think is probably a strong link there. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I agree. Yeah. And, I think like even very young, very young babies, some babies' first words are onomatopoeic words. Um, and of course they continue throughout childhood. And my one of my sort of theories is they that they really support production skills because they okay, they they incorporate some sounds of of the language, so per, per, were, fur. But also they 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 might include some other sounds like growling sounds or like, you know, kind of more more expressive sounds we wouldn't normally use in language, but that is anyway going to support language production more generally. And things like a buzzing bee, like zzz, 
sound is actually the z sound is quite difficult for children, especially early on to produce. But in producing it in an onomatopoeic way, in an expressive way, allows them to sort of rehearse those kinds of sounds. And I know this is something that a few speech and language therapists have contacted me about because um, they find that they actually use onomatopoeia in their um in their treatment sometimes for children who don't speak, who, who, who are maybe nonverbal or late to talk. Um, and they can be used to express things with um, and pre- rehearse production without actually producing like grammar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's also interesting, isn't it, that when you think about it, a lot of the songs that we will sing for you with young children, whether they be nursery rhymes or very simple repeated songs and rhymes, they often include things like farm animal noises. You know, those, you know, the old McDonald's and, you know, all of those sorts of things. Actually, they, you know, they have all of those in them. You know, don't they? You know, that's and and they are fun to do as, you know, with the actions and all of all of those other things. Um, and presumably part of your work is is that that link to song and rhyme, you know, that kind of using those as well. So I haven't I haven't actually done work on um, on like song in, in any way, but I know that um like rhyme is a really important part of developing um like a like phonologic what we call phonological memory so the ability to kind of plan the sounds of words and so this is sometimes used in testing children's ability to remember um like to, to, testing their phonological memory basically so yeah it's it's a it's a really important sign of phonological development yeah, interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Um, and then the third word. So we've got we've we've covered iconicity and onomatopoeia. The third thing that, that really stood out for me was eye tracking, um, which sounds very very technical. Eye tracking. So tell us about eye tracking in your research. Uh, well, eye tracking is actually we use it in infant research, um, but it's used it's used in marketing. It's used in gaming. I think now it's used for a medical. Um, so to medical intervention, so people who can't speak can use their eyes to look at things and that the, a voice will um, speak the word that they're looking at. Um, and it's a, actually very simple technology and it's great for working with babies and children. Um, you have a, a screen that is basically just a TV screen and um, right underneath it, a panel of infrared. And the infrared reflects off the pupil and can tell you where on the screen your pupil is looking at any given point. As long as you know the size of the screen and the dimension of your screen, it can tell you exactly like within a couple of millimetres where the eyes are looking. So for babies, this is great, and and children, but um, it's even if you can't talk, it's still really great because um, you can show a baby two pictures. Oh, there's a, a dog and a duck on the screen, and you can say, look at the dog. And if they look at the dog, when you ask them to look at the dog, even if they can't say anything, you know that they know the word dog, for example. So eye tracking has been used to show is that babies as young as six months already know words. They already know like object words like dog, bottle, nose. Um, And eye tracking allows us to see that. And if you ask um, a young child to, to look at something or if you say a word that's on the screen, it, adults can be tricky because they might not bother looking at the thing you tell them to look at but children will so you can test the child's language knowledge you can just test how um how quick they're how, how, how familiar a word is to them because you they'll look quicker if it's really familiar you can also do word learning experiments so you can test them on you can teach them some 
novel words, novel grammar, and then show them a screen and, and test, use the, use the images on the screen to test if they've learned the novel words or the novel grammar. Uh -huh. So it's a, it's a really cool way of, of yeah, working yeah. with. Children. It is interesting. And presumably as well, you have to be quite careful with the with the image that you show in that in that it has to be a very an, an easily recognizable bottle, say, or recognizable whatever it might be, cat or dog or, or whatever else. And the reason I say it is that I, I know there have been times, certainly previously for myself as a teacher, where there have been things like um, phonics resources produced and, you know, by a variety of different people and organisations. And that there are certain, there are so often within, a, say, a pack of phonics cards, there's often one image that the children don't recognise that it is a dog or they don't, for what, you know, that it, that it takes a certain degree of experience, life experience to know that it is that from the image. That makes I, I don't I don't I don't think I'm explaining it very well, Catherine. But you do you know what I mean? That, I do. Yeah, and actually, that's actually something. Again, that's something that we can test using eye tracking, but in other ways too. Is really big challenge for children is they learn about a very kind of small environment at home where there maybe is one cat and one teddy and one cup that they used to or two cups, and they have to somehow learn that. A dog can be anything from a like a chihuahua to a German shepherd, right? And that that is still a dog. And so things like eye tracking can be used to test. And there's lots of studies that have tested, and probably much older children than what I'm that what I'm used to working with, testing how easily and how quickly they can generalize having learned a new concept. How do they generalize that single concept to lots of similar things that have the same are the same kind of concept? If that makes sense. So. Um, yeah, it's something children really have to figure out somehow. Yes, absolutely. Um, the other thing that I was going to ask you uh, was that um, that in, in terms of certainly in terms of my role, we talk a lot about um, speech and language and communication. So communication development being being one of the prime areas of learning. So along alongside physical development and children's personal, social and emotional development, communication um, development is one of those prime areas of learning because it underpins learning across across all of those different other areas of learning. And I was going to ask you about about that kind of idea that that you kind of alluded to it on again within your website that that idea of of early word learning and early speech and how it shapes what children learn next. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit about that kind of that link between children's speech, early speech and broader learning yeah so um i mean so this is a really big topic and it's there's only a very narrow part of it that's within my expertise but um i mean i think i guess i want to start by saying something that may, i don't know if this is something people think about or not but speech production is among many other things it's an action right so it's just like it's often likened to learning to walk or learning to reach and pick things up it's it's a very very complicated physical well series of physical actions um so it in that thereby it incorporates lots of other processes so like as well as learning words like memorizing the the kind of matching between a, a word and its meaning children also have to learn these very very complex series of articulations in the, in the vocal tract in the mouth um, so that's 
that's where my research is focused. Um, but the ability to memorize that and sort of develop those very strong kind of, you know, when we're talking now, we're talking now, we're not thinking about it, right? So we walk and we don't think about it. But when children learn to do it, I'm not saying they have to think about it, but they have to be able to produce a word accurately um, without thinking. And that is a really long process. So without getting it wrong. So they keep getting it wrong, getting it wrong, getting it wrong. And then eventually they develop a kind of a motor schema, like the motor actions that they need they need to, to produce it correctly. And that's a really long process. And it, that incorporates a lot of memory. Um, another thing that's actually really interestingly linked to learning to talk is learning to walk because as children develop the capacity to move independently to run around to um, basically like capture the world from their own view rather than from wherever their parents put them <laughs> so when they can I mean even sitting up you sit up and you can turn your head and look around your um, in fact your whole vocal tract changes when you sit up so um, even sitting affects language but walking around being able to um, view the world from your own perspective going out and reaching things exploring things that drives curiosity that drives um, just your ability to see uh, an, the same object from different perspectives um, to be able to go under something to sit on top of something completely changes your like view of what an object is and therefore changes your need for expressing um, things about the object right so um, so that's been really strongly linked to learning to talk. So basically when children learn to walk, when they learn to move around more independently, they, they develop a whole new set of like world ideas, like world views and world concepts that they need to learn to be able to express. Um, yes, yeah. I don't know if that's... Yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's really interesting. And it goes back to what we were saying just before, doesn't it? That that the, the kind of the, the physical experience... Um, being you know a bit like when we were saying about kind of the onomatopoeic words that the action of pretending to be a cow or a cat or a or a dog and then and then exploring those onomatopoeic words links the the action to the word and somehow draws a child towards it in a way that in a way that a word that is just a word that doesn't include those things might not be quite as appealing so so woof is more appealing than dog for example, because because it's more playful, fun, and in, might involve actions, and in the same way, you could you could carry on with that thread, I suppose, and say, well, when a child then learns to walk or toddle, and it's a rainy day and they're out in their Wellington boots, it when they jump into a puddle and then an adult says splash, then the child's going to jump into the next puddle and laugh as well as the adult says splash, says splash. And then at some point, the child's going to have a go at the word splash because that's what you say when you jump in a puddle. Yeah, yeah. So, so really it's nice kind example. of experience yeah. and routine and an adult supporting. It's lots of things all drawn in to the experience, isn't it? But the key is the experience. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's like as the child develops, like it, it's what I would call a dynamic system. Like it, as one thing changes, a lot of other things change as well. And that isn't something that's, I mean, we see so much change in the first year of life, but that those changes continue as a child goes to school, as they go into a new environment, as they meet a wider range of people with different 
like different toys, you know, all of those things are changing a child's conceptual conceptualization, their understanding of the world and their kind of what they wish to express. And I think um, a lot of what a child like learns very early on is things that they want to say. There's some research in um, coming out of um, the, a lab in Göttingen in Germany that is really interested in curiosity-driven learning. So this idea that children actually have interests. Very, very early on, children have their own interests. It might be trucks, it might be animals, whatever. <laughs> but that is actually going to capture their attention and support their learning. So it isn't really necessarily about language. It's also about this curiosity and um like a, an interest in a thing you know we have that as adults but children have it too and I think probably most parents could tell tell say what their child's interests are yeah yeah absolutely I, do you know always I think puzzles certainly puzzles me but probably puzzles many early as teachers is that sometimes I think young children at around the age of four maybe maybe younger are drawn towards words that are actually far more complex than you would expect them to be interested in and there are typical, you know, dinosaurs and all of the words linked to dinosaurs, for example, are a typical one. You think, well, what, you know, what, you know, why, what, you know, that of all of the words, why, why pterodactyl, you know, or, you know, or Tyrannosaurus rex, or, you know, all of those words that are, are actually incredibly complex. And yet there's an element of being drawn towards them because of the complexity, I think, maybe. I don't know. I'm guessing. Yeah. I mean, they're interesting words as well, aren't they? And and if they relate to a thing that a child's interested in and they at that time they've got this amazing memory and they can learn all these details. And uh, yeah, it's it's but that's a really great example because knowing those words is not going to be that useful in day-to-day -day conversation. <laughs> but it just speaks to curiosity and interest and that moving them forward. I mean, that's not my research. So I, I'm not, I, I don't know loads about it, but I think it's a really interesting um, kind of, ex kind of it, it explains some aspects of development that I think language development research on its own can't explain. Absolutely. And it's fascinating, isn't it? That when that you think that those children go from, um, from those onomatopoeic words, say, you know, with it, you know, sort of very early on, to to then words linked to say actions like like having a go at the word splash, for example, maybe at, a, at whatever stage as they're toddling and, and and walking, and then you get to sort of four-year-old children who were drawn towards some children anyway, drawn towards the far more complex words. You know, that, and that's another step, isn't it? That's another leap forward that they're, they're not just learning in a way. They, well, it seems to me anyway, not just learning, learning words using one strategy. So we don't carry on being just drawn towards the onomatopoeic words. Otherwise, actually, our language would just be full of onomatopoeic words, wouldn't it? So to me, that, that actually that, that works for that age of child. And then you get your action words like say splash or whatever it might be that are linked to this is what I'm doing and then you get other words beyond that that are about the curiosity or about the a real interest or a real fascination that takes us in a different direction yeah yeah and and probably also is linked as well to that memory development as well and like the ability to actually memorize this whole co cohort of new words um 
which isn't necessarily going to be accessible earlier on. And as production is developing too. So all these things are developing at the same time. And at some point they all come together where you can produce a word like pterodactyl and you can remember it and you can link it to a complicated, detailed concept that you know is a dinosaur, but it's a kind of dinosaur. Yeah. These are all like really complicated things mm. to learn. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I was going to ask you as well, um, in terms of, um, and I, I don't know whether this is relevant, so, so feel free to, to, to not necessarily answer it, but, but I wondered whether you had, based on your research, you know, I was saying earlier on that um, teachers and practitioners are finding more and more, you know, as we talked about, the big gap between those children coming in with certain speech and language skills and those coming in without, coming into nursery or coming into reception without those skills. And that for those children who are coming in at a very early stage of speech, in terms of speech development, as teachers and practitioners, we need to kind of step further back than perhaps we had along that, that develop, along those developmental stages than we perhaps previously needed to do. And so with if teachers are doing that, and as many teachers are, teachers and practitioners are at the moment, I wondered whether you had any particular pieces of advice or or whether you whether you felt that there was a you know it was a good opportunity to sort of either correct misconceptions or offer advice around early speech for those teachers and practitioners. I mean, I think certainly for teachers and practitioners, there's probably nothing I would say that they don't already know. But just to, I guess, to like just reiterate and fly the flag for talking to children is I think that's the unanimous, um, you know, you'll read lots of research papers that say, oh, being born in June is bad for language development or, you know, maybe dummies is bad for language development. You know, like like linking these tenuous links between between good and bad things and good and bad language outcomes. But the unanimous thing is talking to children. I'd say if that, especially if children have language delay, um, that have that might be because they're not getting a lot of speech and language input at home, perhaps. And I think the only way to to begin to overcome that would be to to make sure they are getting that in some way, whether that's at school or um, just I don't know if it's practitioners making parents aware. I know speech and language therapists and early years practitioners are amazing at creating interventions and ways of supporting parents to to talk more to their children but that's the thing that children really need and I think book reading is a really great resource for that you know we always fly the flag for getting children to read books but that isn't from my perspective that isn't because book reading is you know the only good thing to do but actually it's a great setting for learning words for hearing language and for in creating interactions too so picture book um that you could like always like thinking about what you can say about the picture books and asking questions about the picture books is is I mean it's really like it's not <laughs> it's probably nothing that anyone hasn't heard before but it, it we know that this is important and we know that this helps um speech and language development and I think there have been a number of intervention studies that have, have used picture book reading with families to see if they can in, increase children's language development. And the one I'm talking about was earlier on in development, but um, it is a, just a known way of... Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think what's interesting as well about the book, about book reading with young children, particularly, is that it is, as you've said, 
brilliant in terms of language and vocabulary and provides a context, doesn't it? A framework for all of those things. But I think it I think it also provides a context for that relationship to form between the adult and the child. Yeah. And I think quite often when we talk about language, certainly in schools and settings, we talk about the importance of talk. But I think what is really crucial is that we remember that that talk is based is built on a relationship usually as well do you, do you know what I mean that and I think I think kind of sharing an experience together or sitting together and reading a story or you know all of those things are about building a relationship that will then flourish using language and vocabulary and that so to mean that that's yeah. that's key isn't it absolutely yeah, yeah. that's I mean Language is functional in, in in some ways, but social in most ways. And without that social element, you know, it it doesn't need to develop beyond the simple functional, you know, re- requirements. So, so yeah, creating that social context is again a step towards that dynamic system. As, as social skills develop, language skills are going to develop too. Hopefully, yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And then finally, Catherine. Um, finally, I was going to ask you basically what what next for you? You know what? Because you're involved in all sorts of research at the moment. What what kind of is coming up on the horizon for you? Uh, well, very exciting. I've just been awarded a really big grant to do a five-year project looking at um, children's very, very, very early vocal development using um, ultrasound to look at tongue movement. So what I'm interested in is whether or not very early on, as young as four months old, are babies activating their their speech articulators so their tongue um, when they're listening to other people talk so this could be really important for a very very early vocal development and it could have really important implications for um, future language abilities as well so going to be starting at age four months and then testing the children again age three to see if their tongue movements in infancy might be linked to um, their ability to learn words and then produce speech later on. So it's going to be a really long project with a big group of children. Um, so yeah, watch this space. <laughs> it, sound, it sounds fascinating. It, it, it's even just as you were talking a bit about it then, I was thinking, well, then you start to get into kind of muscle development, don't you? And kind of the, the tongue and, 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 and how the child then learns to use their mouth. And it made me think, you know, those sort of early stages of say weaning, of of, um, of feeding a child of the of of what foods they and what textures that they have and they explore is that then linked to speech and the the skills around using your mouth in terms of speech does that well, make sense yeah, yeah yeah I mean I don't know the answer I mean that, this is a really exciting question I, I don't know how we would answer it but does so does that muscular development lead to better language or does early production like good like earlier production of, of speech sounds like babble does that support muscular development so yes. what came first the chicken or the egg what came first yeah. the, the muscle development or the language development yeah 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 interesting stuff Catherine it's been fantastic to speak to you thank you so much it's really interesting to talk to somebody who has such a specific interest in one particular area um it because of course as, as teachers and you know uh, and I'd include myself within this, you know, our 
our interest is is general you know we, we talk about child development very generally and we know about it of course but we talk generally about all sorts of different things whereas actually to talk to somebody who's really pinpointing certain points of development there is is fascinating so yeah thank, thank you so you. much for your time it's been really it's been, interesting to hear yeah you. it's been great for me as well i really enjoyed talking to you thank you wonderful <laughs> thanks Catherine. So there you go. Thank you very much to Catherine for joining us on this week's episode. Really interesting conversation about, of course, speech, language and communication, something that so many of us um, have got as a real priority at the moment. Um, And thank you very much to you people for listening along too. I hope you found the discussion useful. Now, this is our last episode before the Easter break. So if you're off over Easter, have a very well-deserved rest and we'll see you back here for new episodes at the start of the summer term.